Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49 as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 49, we'll be looking at verses 14 all the way through 50 verse 3. And you may also want to find Hosea because we're going to be looking at Hosea 3 as part of our introduction. So you may want to find that. It's right after Daniel. I have to look for it sometimes too. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us. Just as Todd prayed, that you would open our hearts and our minds. That we could see the wisdom of your word. It is competing in our hearts and our minds with the wisdom of this world, even the wisdom that we have derived, or at least think we have, of our own, thinking ourselves wise. But there's no comparison. You are the one that is only wise. And so as we open your word, help us to be changed by it. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I do want to introduce our passage today from the book of Hosea. Just a little bit of intro on Hosea. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom. We've talked quite a bit about the northern kingdom in the book of Isaiah, mostly about the fact that it was completely destroyed by Assyria. And in order to serve as a picture for the people of God about what was going to happen and then about God's relationship with his people... Hosea was commanded to marry a prostitute named Gomer. In order to show how much the Lord loved his people, when Gomer had sold herself to someone else, Hosea was commanded to then go buy her back. And so turn with me to Hosea chapter 3 as we read this really short chapter. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecta of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also belong to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And what an incredible picture of redemption. I feel like I could just stop there and be done. It's a book that I'd love to, I've taught through before as a younger man. I'd love to teach through it now as I've gained some wisdom and experience. It'll have to wait till we finish Isaiah, obviously. We're in Isaiah 49 today. We have this similar kind of picture. And we start with a lament today in Isaiah 49, verse 14, about how the Lord has forsaken them. If you remember what we talked about last week, Judah was given this prophecy about their ultimate redemption. And so this is a surprising lament. Or is it? Do you think Christians, thousands of years from now, if Christ hasn't returned, will read the laments of Christians today 
and wonder why we had such a lack of faith. Maybe. But they too will struggle with the same lack of faith that we have because it's part of the condition that we have here on this earth. We are living in this state of already not yet. The Lord's promises are true in Christ. Yet, He hasn't returned to see them to complete fulfillment. So we wait, just like Judah waited for the day when they would be delivered. It's the Lord who is faithful. And we're going to see that in our passage today. It's the faithfulness of the Lord that holds His promises together. We aren't able to hold up our end. We don't even believe things when we're told clearly, over and over again. And so the Lord is is the one who shows us mercy. So as we consider this passage, I want to look at it in three points. The Lord does not forget His children. The Lord uses the nations to bless His children. And the Lord does not divorce His bride. So with that, let's look together at the text. Isaiah 49, starting at verse 14. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 49, starting at verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget a nursing child that she has, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They gather. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land. Surely now you, you will be too narrow or you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then your heart will say in your, then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought, who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift my hand to the nations. I will raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their and their queens, your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground. They shall bow down to you and lick dust from your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall shall not be put to shame. Can the can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the tyrant be rescued For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came to you, was there no man? 
Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is, it my, is, is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember, last week, we had the promises of God concerning His servant who would ultimately redeem His people, give them eternal life. We saw that pointed directly to our Lord Jesus. Those promises are true today in Jesus. They were true in Isaiah's days in Jesus. And they were true before Isaiah's day in Jesus. All scripture is pointing forward to Jesus Christ. It looks forward to him. It looks directly at him. And it looks back at him. It's all about him. Which I think we've made clear over and over. So in verse 14, we have what will serve as our backdrop of our theme today. We have the lament of a people who have been delivered from exile. It's the same lament that we have lots of times today in ourselves. And we've heard it a bunch. We've said it a bunch. We've definitely thought it. God is so good and loves his people so much. Then why didn't he deliver them from the hands of the Babylonians in the first place? And think about our text in Isaiah that we looked at earlier. If he loved Hosea, why would he command him to marry a prostitute in the first place? If he loved the northern kingdom, then why would he have Assyria completely destroy them? I mean, if he loved his people today, then why don't we have lives free of hardship and difficulty? We don't. I know all of you. You don't. Well, we've dealt with this idea a lot because Isaiah deals with it a lot. And his conclusion is always the same every time. God is God, we are not. And we can't always understand his ways, but one thing is for certain, he will not forsake his children. And that's that's the overwhelming theme of what we see in Isaiah 49, really since chapter 40, it's been over and over. So that brings me to the first point, the Lord does not forget his child. So look again at the end of verse 13, just going back to last week just to kind of see this idea that we closed up with last week for the lord has comforted his people and he will have compassion on his afflicted sounds like a good thing he has comforted his people but what is their answer in reply but zion said he's not comforted me the lord has forsaken me the lord has forgotten me notice they're referred to as zion we saw that in our our call to worship in psalm 102 This is just another name for the city of Jerusalem, but it's a lot more than that. So it's an idea. It's a whole lot more than that. It encompasses the whole idea of this people, of the promise of God. These are God's chosen people living in a holy city in the midst of a place called the promised land. This is this whole idea. All these old covenant promises are tied up in that city. All the things that point forward to the coming Messiah, to the promise, they are all looking forward to it. That's what it means when they say, Zion. The Lord is supposed to be comforting them, but He's not comforted them in their own mind. He has forsaken them. He has forgotten them. We should totally get this. 
At least I do. When I read the promises of God, and I read the promises that we see over and over again in Scripture, you see it from our Lord Jesus even, I will never forsake you. Then I compare that to the difficulties of this life. It's easy to wonder the same thing that Zion wonders here. Has the Lord forgotten me? I remember when I was a kid, it was probably pretty little, like maybe young school age, we went to Walmart. And it was a Walmart in uh, Carothersville, Missouri, which is a really small place. And this is like one of the first Walmarts in Missouri. Really small, like smaller than like a Dollar General today. So small. Still there. And uh, I got lost in there because I was always running around doing my own thing. Never wanted to be with my mom until I couldn't find her. Then that's all I wanted. And that really small Walmart might as, been, might as well have been like Man Cave. Just vast, never-ending. And I remember thinking, well, my mom has left me here. And I was just completely destitute. And I, so I went and found a corner of the building, which happened to be the paint section. So I like sat on a can of paint and cried. And my mom probably was just two aisles over, you know, the whole time. She heard me crying. It seemed like an eternity later. But she found me. Of course, um, I'm here. Obviously, I'm not still up at Walmart. You knew that she found me, right? I mean, you've met my mother. She's not. She's a reasonable person. She cares about her children. Even though I was completely unlovable as a child, she still loved me and cared for me. Even though I wanted to hide myself in the clothing racks of Walmart, I was that kid. She found me. She loved me. She cared for me. We know we have that in the Lord as well. So why then don't we believe verse 15? Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Not only has he not forgotten us, brothers and sisters in Christ, he has engraved us on the palms of his hand. We cannot, we cannot be removed from him. His very hands bear us, bear our names. And notice the transformation that takes place to the children that understand this and that are the children of this promise. Look at verses 18 and following. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them as a bride does. We have this picture of a bride there in verse 18. In verse 19, surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. What is he trying to say? Your city, which is a desolate place now, because all of Jerusalem was carried off into this exile, that city, which is a desolate place, is going to be so full of people, you're going to look around and you're going to say, it's just too narrow for me to be here. There's all this joy now. There's all this provision that they have. The Lord has redeemed His people. He has brought them from death to life. It's the same picture that we have today as we had, as they had then. Yet we don't say that in a vacuum. It'd be easy to just say that and kind of exist in that reality. 
right? The Lord's promises are good. I'm going to be full of joy and provision for the rest of my days. We, we understand that there's suffering in the world. Scripture doesn't shrink away from that understanding at all. God's Word never shrinks away from suffering. In fact, it's very quick to remind us of the promises that we have in God, even in the midst of our suffering. But we struggle with this. We struggle with that dichotomy because we want one. We don't want the other. We can't have both. We don't ever want both. And the reason that we struggle with this is really just twofold. We don't understand our own sin at all. And we don't understand the character of God. We need more and more understanding of those things. We don't think that we've done anything to deserve the slightest discipline at all from God. We've probably done just enough up to that point. But of course, he shouldn't be disciplining us. He should be dealing with those others that, you know, deserve it. Because if you look at us, well, we just make mistakes from time to time. We don't even really want to call it sin. We just kind of make mistakes from time to time. And what we really want to see God as is we want to see him as like just from a from a local illustration. We want to see him as like the Murray Bank ice cream truck. Right. That just shows up and showers us with drumsticks and ice cream sandwiches. Why are you here? I don't care. It's ice cream. You know, it's just yay. And it's just this celebration. Nothing's bad. Everything's good, including me. I'm not bad either. And that's not the case. Israel shows us that. We, we know that in our of ourselves. So how do we write our understanding of ourselves and of God's character? We turn to God's Word, right? Which transforms our hearts and our minds. I can say that without a doubt, since I have been studying this book of Isaiah, 49 chapters in now, part of 50, I can say that without a doubt, I have grown in my understanding of my own sin and of the character of God and his faithfulness to his people. I hope that you can say the same. Yet, even as I study and I read and I ponder, I can understand that this sea of ignorance that I float on concerning God's character and my sin is just vast. And I'm never going to cross it this side of heaven. I'm always going to need Him to be giving me His wisdom. I'm never going to get to the point like, yeah, I finally get that. Never this side of heaven. So when we wander, like Zion does here in verse 14, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. We come from a place that lacks power, that lacks knowledge, that lacks any kind of wisdom or understanding. Because we're so finite. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Yet we remain hopeful. Why do we have hope? We remain hopeful because we have access to the one who has no limits at all. He loves us even when we say things like verse 14. Not only does he take care of us directly, but what we see in this text, he actually recruits the world to take care of his own people. That brings me to the next point. The Lord uses the nations to bless his child. Look with me at verses 22 through 23. I thought July was supposed to be a dry month. 
crazy climate change. All right, so, <laughs> silly. All right, so look at me at verses 22 and 23. Sorry I was distracted. I just had to let it go. All right. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations. I will raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Notice what's going on here. The Lord is signaling to the nations. And they obey. They do what He says. These are pagan nations. It's not as if the people of God that are going to be walking from Babylon to Jerusalem after the exile are going to be walking a path of Christian nations that are going to be showering them with goodness on this parade as they walk. These are pagan nations that the Lord has signaled to. These are nations that are of the world and they are opposed to God and the children of God. Again, the picture here isn't of believers coming to help other believers. Remember again the immediate picture. Israel is traveling from Babylon, which is in the middle of modern day Iraq, and they're going to Jerusalem, which is pretty far away. And there's going to be a path that they're going to have to take, and it's going to be through many nations, many of which whom have had problems with Israel in the past. And yet, what do we read? That the Lord has signaled them, and they're going to help them. And not only that, they're going to be in subjection to them. Why do we read this? Why, why is this happening? Because the Lord is called. And the call of the Lord isn't one that is resisted. Just as he rose up Babylon to crush Judah, rose up Cyrus to crush Babylon, now he's raising up other nations to usher his children home. Because he's sovereign over all his creatures and all their actions. And notice this isn't some sort of mere compliance. But it's like a subservience. They're bowing down. It even says they're licking the dust of their feet. I think one of the greatest pictures of this idea in the Scriptures is found in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. He's on the way to Damascus. You guys know the story. It's in Acts chapter 9 if you want to look at it later. And with him, what he has with him is he has a bunch of indictments against Christians. And Paul's plan is to turn these into the authorities so that those Christians will be arrested and put in prison and maybe even killed. Paul has no problem with this until, of course, he meets the Lord Jesus. He meets the Lord Jesus. In fact, he doesn't meet him. Jesus comes to him and throws him off his horse. Paul says, well, who are you, Lord? Because he's blind. He doesn't even see what's going on. And Jesus responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He wasn't persecuting Jesus himself. But remember, Jesus is the perfect representation of his people. To hurt his people is to hurt him. So Paul, notice what he does. If you go to Acts chapter 9, you read the rest of the book of Acts, since it's all about the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, who was on his way to have Christians arrested. He not only submits to the Lord, he becomes a child of God, and he becomes a massive blessing to the children of God, and also receives blessing 
from the world. So in 22 and 23 in Isaiah 49, what we see is a provision for God's people. That God will recruit the world in order to provide for His people and to keep them safe. And we understand this in this country. We enjoy a lot of freedoms in this country that many of the parts of the world don't. Yet even in those countries where persecution of Christians is the norm, what we see of the church, we don't see the church being like destroyed and being and being beat back into submission. And in fact, we see the church growing in spite of, and I would even say because of, that persecution. It's because the Lord has servants everywhere. Because He does what He pleases with His creation and in His creation. There are many examples of this in the Old and New Testament. I mean, you can just keep going. But the Lord has used people that are not necessarily His own to protect His own people. I think of like Exodus 1, the midwives protecting the Jewish children. The Roman centurion keeping Paul safe when the mob was upon him. Rahab keeping the spies safe. Just in Jericho, so many examples of this all throughout Scripture. God is able to keep His people safe however He pleases. In the same way, He's able to deliver His people from any captor, whether they be mighty or a tyrant, is the words He uses there in 24 through 26. Verse 26, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So not only is He one that never forgets, but He's one that literally has every resource at His disposal in order to see His people thrive. This is something that we need to remember. Not only for our own lives, not only for our own struggles and our own suffering, whatever that suffering is in our lives, but also as we do ministry to a lost world. Because a lot of times when we see the lost world, we think, what can, what can I do? I don't even understand them anymore, much less I don't know how to help them. The greatest tool that we have in helping them is understanding the fact that we have a Heavenly Father that doesn't have obstacles. He's, he's not impeded. He's not thwarted at all. He doesn't have to like step back a moment and think about how am I going to handle this new kind of problem. In fact, the greatest tool that we have is to realize that we are the tool. The hand that wields us is a master of his craft. He always succeeds every single time. Let us trust that the Lord will keep his promises. He will deliver all of his people, not only us, but those whom the Lord will use us to bring to himself. That brings me to the last point. The Lord does not divorce his bride. Look with me at chapter 50, verses 1 through 3 again. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Notice the Lord asks here for a divorce certificate. The people made a claim, right, that in verse 14 of chapter 49, that the Lord had forsaken them, that He had forgotten them. So the Lord is coming to them now and He's asking for evidence of that to be true. This is a rhetorical question, rhetorical question, of course, because there isn't a certificate of divorce at all. It's not that the papers were kind of, were drawn up and just not signed. 
is that the process never began. We look at how he uses them, how he turns them, and how he talks to them in this way. They're like, well, you've forsaken us. You've forgotten us. Show me the evidence that I've done that. He only sees evidence to the contrary. And notice he even gives us a reason why this happened to them. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. For your transgressions your mother was sent away. Zion, just like us many times, we want to feel like the victim, but instead we are the transgressor. If anyone should seek damages, it should be God. If anyone has the right to say, I have been forsaken, it's God himself. Because it's me that's walked away from him. Not the opposite. Think back to Hosea that we read earlier. When Hosea went to the auction to purchase his wife back, what leg did she have to stand on in that situation? Do you think that she was standing there thinking, well, why, why hasn't Hosea come to save me yet? Why isn't why he here? Why didn't he come earlier? She has no leg to stand on. She was willingly leaving him over and over for other men. Yet he showed up anyway. He paid the sum that was due to purchase her back and redeemed her. We have this same feeling that we see in chapter 50 of Isaiah. Notice, look at verses 2 and 3. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. It's not that he's powerless at all. The Lord's not powerless. In fact, it's just the opposite. He has the power over creation. He has the power to make it live or to die, to bring mourning, to bring celebration, whatever he pleases. And so what we have here is a perfect picture of the gospel. The promise of God to rescue a people who see themselves as the victim, all the while holding them up the whole way. And continuing to do so, even as they continue to just not get it over and over again. I mean, think of that picture of Hosea coming to buy his wife. It wasn't like it wasn't like she was just a little bit okay. She had sold herself completely into prostitution, and he came and he purchased her back and redeemed her. This is what our Lord Jesus did. The very Son of God, God Almighty Himself, came to earth in order to purchase His people back after they had left for other gods. That's us. The price he paid wasn't some silver and some barley like Hosea had to pay. The price that Jesus paid was his very life. The perfect son of man became the thing that I was. He stood in my place as one condemned. If you're here in Christ Jesus this morning, he stood in your place as one condemned so that we could stand in his place as one glorified. 
The picture here is of a people who are loved and cherished even though they don't return that affection all the time. So Christians, examine yourself this morning. Look into your heart. How are you withholding love from God? How are you mistrusting Him because of the way that your life has gone? When are you looking at Him and saying, Why have you forsaken me? What, is the, what are those situations in your life? You know what they are. As soon as I said that, you thought of something. What are those situations where you're looking at Him and, Why this? Why have you forsaken me? Rather than blame Him. Instead, call out to Him. He stands ready. In fact, He's never left. He's been there the whole time. He's been holding you the whole time you've been blaming Him. He's never once forsaken you. Turn to Him. Realize, we are the only ones that ever let go. But He never does, even when we do. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, let me encourage you to see and hear what He has done for His own people. Name any false god in the world. Name any other thing that you may think is going to help you or save you. You can maybe name some things, but you can't name a thing that will continue to give to you and will continue to come back to you time and time again, even when you fail. Rather than continually calling out to things that can't save you, instead call upon the name of Jesus Christ alone and be saved. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be a people who no longer wonder why the Lord has forsaken us because He hasn't. Instead, let us be a people who never forget that He has never forgotten us. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to You, we stand as a people who have often said, why have You forsaken Me? And so, Lord, help us to see that You've never left. In fact, You've always been here. You're holding us up even now as we struggle with this text. And so, Lord, we pray that You would open our hearts and mind, that we would be changed by the renewing of our minds because of the transformation power of Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at this time, please stand with me as we sing our response to God's Word.